Welcome to another episode of the View Charlotte podcast. My name is Jeremy Orden, one of the partners with the Orden Ryder Group at Allen Tate Realtors. The purpose of the View Charlotte podcast is to help educate our audience to both the real estate market and our Charlotte metropolitan market, while also providing valuable information about our city from an entertainment and economic viewpoint. Each week, we'll delve into a topic that involves Charlotte to gain a deeper understanding of either the real estate market or life in Charlotte. Our mission has always been to educate our clients to the real estate market so they can make the best decisions for their family. And hopefully these weekly podcast installments will help to deliver on that mission. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us. This week, I am honored to welcome back our longtime key contributor to the podcast, one of my best friends and my business partner, Brittany Osborne. Regular listeners of the podcast know Brittany for her amazing sense of humor and her deep understanding of the real estate process. This week, Brittany and I are going to be discussing our current real estate shift. So Brittany, why don't you start us off by telling us what is a shift in the real estate market? Hey Jeremy, well thanks for having me again. And yes, today we're going to start by talking about what is the shift in the market. Essentially, it's any change that alters the previous norms and especially through the first quarter and then some of this year we've seen some pretty significant shifting. Um, and in true Brittany and Jeremy form, we decided to create our own top 10 list of the biggest shifts in the market that we've seen so far this year. So some of these might be a little bit redundant as we were going through things, but we felt that they deserve their own category because we're not really looking at the macro situations. We're looking at the micro situations and how it's going to impact our clients. So Brittany, why don't you kick us off with what's the top of your list? Because I know I've been hearing it from you for a couple of weeks now. <laughs> yes, number one definitely has to be appraisal. Um, in the past couple of years, we've seen, especially on the listing side, multiple offers and appraisal waivers. These are agreements where the buyer is essentially saying that they will move forward with the purchase regardless of appraisal conditions and pay any shortfall between the appraisal and the purchase price. You know, this is something that we're just not seeing as often anymore. So you and I were discussing this because, you know, I wrote an offer this week that had an appraisal addendum. We were in a multiple offer situation in a very hot market in Charlotte. And the only way for us to be able to get our offer accepted was going to be to include that appraisal addendum. Well, and I think they're definitely still out there, but whereas a year ago we were seeing these on every single property. I mean, it was just part of the part of the offer process. Okay, well, we're going to need to include this now. Um, so we're just not seeing them that often. I agree with you. It's something that, especially on the listing side, you and I saw on every single property that we were getting offers on, people agreeing to pay any shortfall whatsoever. It's just not as prevalent. So right. I think that's a really good place to start off is that, and I think we're going to continue to come back to this, is that the buyer expectation and the buyer experience is changing from where we previously were. Do you agree? I agree. And I think for the better too. And I think that's one of the things that I'm telling my buyers is you, you know, you're getting a little bit of the power back that you lost over the last few years. I think that's a good way of putting it. Like it really is a shift in 
you know, the power dynamics between yeah. buyer and seller. And now we're finding a little bit more equilibrium. And yeah. I think that's a little bit more balanced. Of, that's it. It's it's the overall theme. And I think that leads us right on to number two, which is multiple offers. Yes, this is definitely a good one. So I want to be clear. We're still seeing multiple offers on our properties. However, it's not the free-for-all that we were seeing a year ago. Exactly. At this time last year, we were having conversations with clients about whether they wanted to go 15 to 20% over asking price um, to get the house. And the market is not at that level anymore. We still do, you know, we still do not have enough inventory. Let's make that very clear. But we're not seeing the craze that we had previously. I think that's one of the big things that's really shifted most significantly is the number of offers that we're seeing. You know, we had properties last year that were getting 40 plus offers, you know, with half of those coming in before anybody stepped foot in the house. That's just not the conditions that we're seeing today in all areas of our greater metropolitan market. Now, there are certain areas and, you know, they typically associate with specific school assignments where you just can't even get an appointment. This morning, I had clients that reached out to me. They wanted to see a house, and they already have a deadline for the offers, and there is no time slot available before the offer deadline. So we're still seeing the multiple offers, Mm -hmm. but not the craze that it was last year. Once again, this goes back to what you were saying. We're seeing more of that balance in the power dynamics between the buyer and the seller. You know, and and I think that kind of goes into the next thing, which is going to be staging and pricing. Um, Along with that balance comes buyers saying, you know what, I don't have to buy this house. So sellers have got to kind of sit back and really prep better than some sellers were previously. Um, So number three is going to be home staying on the market for longer periods of time because of pricing and staging. I really love that you brought this one up because... We've, we obviously, with my relationship with you and your role on the team and, you know, the importance of marketing to the level of satisfaction we want to deliver to our clients, staging, we know, is one of the most important things that will help move a house. And if we look back a year ago, I mean, I cannot begin to count how many vacant homes I showed. Like, I don't think I saw a single staged professional home that was on our touring docket at all during that time period. And especially over the last few months, I'm seeing more and more homes that have professional staging performed. They've brought in materials and they've really cleaned things up versus like the free-for-all that it was a year ago. Well, and I'm going to jump in here because this is going to take us back to the staging podcast you and I recorded a couple weeks ago or a month ago now at this point. You know, staging doesn't have to be professionally done. And The good thing about our team and the services we provide and the expectations we set for our buyers and our sellers is that, you know, you've got to make your home show ready. You don't want buyers distracted by a mess or your stuff. You want them focusing on the features of the house. So we never stopped encouraging our sellers to prep a home properly, but my goodness, plenty of people out there were saying, oh, I'm going to put my house on the market, taking cell phone pictures, slapping them up on the internet, you know, floors not cleaned carpets not vacuumed, walls not touched up, homes not professionally cleaned. I mean, just not show ready at all. And unfortunately for buyers at that time, you know, if that was a neighborhood you wanted or a floor plan you were seeking, a lot of buyers felt like they didn't really have a choice. It was like, okay, it is what it is. I'm going to have to add painting to my list of things to do. 
I'll make sure I have it deep cleaned when I purchase it. Whereas now they're like, you know what? Ew, I don't want to buy this house. It's gross. I, I, I'm i glad that we've seen that shift again because now the people that weren't doing their job properly in preparing sellers have had to kick it up a notch again. Well, and I agree with that. I, I think that buyers have you know become more selective in the investments that they're willing to make. But at the same time, it also makes the overall experience better for everybody because your home should be clean for showing. You want to provide the best experience possible for people coming in there. If if we make the correlation to buying almost anything else, imagine like you're going to go buy a dishwasher. Do you walk into like a big box retailer and you're looking around and everything is bright and it's clean and there's friendly staff or... Do you walk into like a back room sales thing and, you know, it's this horrible experience and you can't imagine trusting these people. And you don't want to be in the space, let alone envision yourself being in the space forever. So I think it's a big piece of it. Why don't you touch on pricing? So I think pricing ties in with this, you know, as well. Um, We're seeing a lot of issues when it comes to pricing. A year ago, it was almost never happening that we were seeing price adjustments because things were really selling right away at and above asking price. And now we're having buyers have the opportunity to, you know, negotiate with sellers to be able to put in an offer that they see as reasonable and engage in that dialogue with the sellers over coming to a meeting of the minds versus the previous situation, which was, this is what I want. How much are you willing to pay over it? So we're really seeing some of that balancing come in with the fact that homes are sitting on the market a little bit longer. Um, And we're going to come back to that in in just, well, I mean, I guess like we're right into that topic right now. So it's it's the fact that homes are not selling day one, Mm -hmm. and that's not a bad thing. Um, One of the conversations that we have with our sellers all the time is everybody likes the idea of, you know, selling their home without ever having a showing. Or people really like selling their home in that one weekend. But for the most part, as long as the seller is getting the offer that they want, there's nothing that says a home has to sell in one day for it to be, you know, a successful marketing approach. Just like at the same time, there's nothing that says that if a home has been on the market for three days, there's something wrong with that house. (laughs) Right. Um, Okay, let's move into number four on our list, which is repairs. Um, We have seen a huge shift in this because just as we saw with appraisal waivers, part of that initial conversation a year or two ago was, okay, what are the terms of your offer? Um, Are you willing to buy the house in as-is condition and not ask for any repairs? Um, So that was one of those things that buyers were letting go of, was just accepting that this is going to be what it is and I'm going to have to handle all this repair work after the fact. I think repairs is probably one of the largest shifts. Like we've seen transactions, you know, fall apart over inspections and the repair negotiation process. And a year ago, we weren't really seeing that. Once again, this comes back to bringing balance back between the buyer and the seller, whereas the buyer is coming in with expectations that they're going to get something close to a move-in ready product. And therefore, we're engaging with the sellers 
on that side in order to make sure that the repairs are made or that there's compensation in order to make sure that the house is safe for the new homeowners. Well, I was just going to say, we've always prepared our clients, or excuse me, our sellers in particular, to prepare for 1% to 2% repair costs. Um, we've just always said that. Build that into your cost. Hopefully you don't need that, but let's build it in just to be safe. And handling repairs throughout a transaction can be done in a number of ways, one of which can be asking for the repairs to be done, or as you mentioned, another, which I think we're seeing, in my opinion, in my business, shifting more towards a repair credit. It just seems to be easier to manage on both sides. The seller doesn't have to stress about whether or not the repairs were done properly, right? Because our our sellers aren't the contractors. And the buyer doesn't have to stress about whether or not something was left off the list or if it wasn't done to their liking. So rather than saying, hey, listen, this is the list of stuff that you want to have taken care of. I'm willing to offer you this credit in lieu of the repair for you to go ahead and handle it after closing. And I think that's the important factor when it comes to repairs. It's ensuring that the right expectations are set, met, and that the work can be completed. And that's not to say that there are not as-is sales that are taking place. Like I have one going on right now. But, you know, that wasn't the expect or I'm sorry, that was the expectation when we wrote the contract. Therefore, that was, you know, what my clients expected. But on other transactions going on right now, we're having really good positive conversations with the sellers and they're meeting with us in order to go ahead and get these repairs taken care of so that the buyers feel comfortable being able to move forward. Once again, this balance and this shift is creating a better experience for the buyer because you don't feel like you're being taken advantage of the entire time between having to pay above asking price, having to bring more money to table in case of an appraisal shortfall, and then having to take on all of the repairs or deficiencies on your own. Right. Um, and all that to say, I think that scares sellers sometimes like, oh, you mean it's shifting to a buyer's market? It's not. You know, sellers are still doing well. There is still low inventory. People still need these homes. It's just the process is changing a little bit in that there's a little give and take versus all or nothing. Um, all right, let's circle back to appraisal and um, hit our number five topic, which is going to be appraisal shortfalls. So I'm going to let you go ahead and start with this because this is something that I know that you know, we've all encountered and had to deal with lately. Yeah, I mean, we've run, we've started to run into this again. So um, we do extensive work on the back end as your listing agent, um, prepping work for the appraiser to show spe- you know, specific features about the house, why we've priced it the way we have. And we provide that, you know, we want to do our best um, to show what's contributed to the pricing of the property. But at the end of the day, an appraiser is the appraiser. They are looking at comps. They are making the adjustments that they see fit to the property. And sometimes that list price or contract price, I should say, and what the the appraiser believes the value of the home are not the same things. And then we run into uh, a shortfall. And that can be as, you know, a very small gap, or it could be as, (laughs) it could be very big. Um, And recently I just dealt with one that was a $30,000 gap. So when something like that comes up, that's huge. Um, you know, and in the past, we say there's a couple different ways to remedy a shortfall. So do you want to take it from there, Jeremy, Jeremy, and talk about what are some of the ways to remedy that? What did you just call me? I don't even know what I said. Gemini? I don't even know what that is, Jeremy. I think you're highly caffeinated this morning. <laughs> I need water. I think when it comes to the appraisal shortfall, yeah, there's there's definitely some remedies that we can discuss. 
um, you know, we recently dealt with a situation where um, a client had purchased a home a year ago. The house was on the market, and then we got the appraisal back from the initial lender. And that lender's appraisal had the house under asking price and under the appraisal that was performed a year ago. We had provided them with a ton of data, but pure and simple, the recent comps weren't supporting the comps that were in existence a year ago, and an appraiser is only going to look back six months. Even though we provided them with all this data, they would not go ahead and adjust it. Our approach was saying, if our market has continued to appreciate over a year ago, how can you say that this house has actually lost 10% based off of that last appraisal? We were able to resolve that situation because the buyer changed lenders. And once they changed lenders, the other appraiser came in and brought the house back to the price that it should have been. But pure and simple, there are such things as bad appraisals. There's also going to be Especially when a house is selling in a short period of time between when it last sold, there could be a lack of data. And if the most recent sale of a house is the last sale of that house, then if we don't have any comparable data of other properties in the neighborhood, it becomes a little bit more difficult to overcome that appraisal. I think the big thing here is making sure that prices are appropriate for the neighborhood and that they're realistic. However, if the appraisal is short, having that appeal approach in mind in order to be able to present the necessary data if it was overlooked the first time and being, you know, with a professional who can guide you through that process. Because I've worked with a ton of agents who do nothing to prepare for the appraisal on their listings. And then when the listing, you know, comes back and the appraisal is short, we ask them, well, what data did you provide? And they say nothing. So they're not really working for their client's best interest in that regard. And I think just one more thing to add to that is essentially the the reason you want to have a skilled agent on your side is to be able to problem solve. Sometimes the result isn't what anybody wants, but if you have someone on your side that has dealt with this before, they can, you know, help navigate you through to get to the best outcome ultimately. Um, I think this really is a good segue again into our next one, which is number six and aspirational pricing. Um, this is something we saw a lot and I'll let kind of Jeremy get into that, but this goes right into those appraisal shortfalls or comes right off of the appraisal shortfalls. So aspirational pricing um, is a term that our broker in charge gave us and we've I have, run with it. <laughs> I mean, we've just run with it. I mean, this has been something that she said we fell in love with and it's one of those things that I think is really important. So aspirational pricing is when all of the data is showing that a house should be listed for X amount of dollars and should sell within a certain range. And then the seller's pricing or their desired price is not realistic within the confines of what the data is providing. Sometimes this is going back where they're expecting to get, you know, 10 to 20% more than what the market value is of their house because that might have been the conditions that we were seeing previously. The other thing that's important about the aspirational pricing is that we're seeing a lot of homes that have been listed with numbers that are just not grounded in any sort of reality. It's really aspirational, asking a very high amount for a property that's probably not worth that. And then we're seeing those properties sit on market for longer periods of time. You know, in a year or two ago, you could look at the data and see that it was trending upwards. You could look at those comps when you're sitting there trying to price home and say, okay, well, these sold for this amount. 
then ours probably will sell for this. And and so that's where you kind of saw the numbers getting bumped up, bumped up, bumped up. But we're just not seeing that anymore. So as Jeremy was saying, you know, that's an adjustment that has got to be made because otherwise you may see yourselves running into appraisal shortfalls, um, not because of a bad appraisal per se, but just possibly because there really just is no data to support that pricing. And you and I have talked a lot that, you know, a property or anything is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Right. But if you're getting a loan, then the insurability of that loan associated with the appraisal, I mean, that becomes one of the most important factors that we're looking at. Well, and most people don't just have, you know, a ton of money sitting there unused that they say, okay, that's fine. This missed, you know, this, this appraisal missed by 30 grand. I have an extra 30 grand to bring to the table. That's a huge amount of money. Um, And on the flip side, the seller may not want to decrease the price by that much. So, you know, it's good if you can meet in the middle. But sometimes that's that's still too much. I agree with you. And and sometimes it's not just agreeing to meet in the middle. It's the fact that there could be no additional money from the seller's side. That's right. In order to bridge that gap. Like you and I have both worked with people who bought at the top of the market and then something might have changed in their life. And now all of a sudden they're in a situation where they do need to sell. There's not enough equity for them to, you know, they're not making money on the sale of this house. They're trying to get out of it. And ultimately, they may not have the funds in order to bridge that shortfall. So, you know, when it comes to the aspirational pricing, I understand everybody thinks that their home is the most valuable home because it's their home and it's super special. However, we need to be realistic about the expectations that we're setting from the beginning and pricing things accordingly. Otherwise, we're going to see those homes sit because buyers have gotten more selective. I think this now comes a really good time to transition over into pool evaluation. I was going to let you run with this one anyway. So yeah, number seven, pool valuation. This is all Jeremy. Okay. So, you know, one of the big things that we've discussed in the past is that since the pandemic, the value of a swimming pool in one's backyard has changed pretty drastically. Previously, we were seeing pools bring values of like ten to $20,000. If you had something really big and dramatic, you know, you were definitely getting a bigger return on investment. But pools were mostly what we've described as usage tax. Now, since the pandemic, pools in our market have become really, really popular. And we are seeing, especially on some varieties of pools, those returns on investments being close to 100% in some occasions. I think the big thing with swimming pools that we're seeing today is that they're still not being priced accordingly. So we're seeing some homes with a swimming pool where they might have put, you know, $50,000 into the backyard for the pool. And then they're trying to ask for $100,000 above, you know, the fair market value because of the investment in the backyard. I think that there's definitely a return on investment associated with pools, and they've become very popular. It's things that buyers right now are really into and having in their backyard. However, the numbers need to align with a realistic number as far as either being able to recreate that or to be able to put it within that range of the comparable data that we're looking at. You ready for me to take number eight? Run with it. (laughs) Um, Number eight is details are important again. And this kind of goes back to the conversation we had previously about staging. But again, you know, a year or two ago, buyers felt like, and in some cases, they really just didn't have the option to nitpick um, within reason, right? And now 
the market has has calmed down enough where even though there's still low inventory, buyers have a little bit more option and they also feel like, hey, there's maybe a little bit more skin in the game with these rates. So I want to be sure that this is what I want. And so that's where we've seen, you know, um, curb appeal come back into play significantly, staging come back into play, cleaning, um, just maintenance stuff. You know, these things are, are still important and they need to be done because buyers are looking at those things and thinking, okay, well, if that vent is dusty, have they maintained the HVAC at all? You know, that, that gives them a pause. I think along the lines of the details being important, it also comes down to the marketing and what we're seeing on the agent side. A year ago, we were seeing homes listed, you know, in our luxury price brackets that had cell phone pictures that were like, you know, not level. We were seeing, you know, really bad lit photos and there were no videos. People you know, even started moving away from like getting floor plans done, um, which is a requirement. But we were seeing a lot of corners being cut. And I think when it comes to today's buyer, they've just become more savvy. They witnessed the craze and either they did participate and they were really burnt by that entire process or they decided to sit it out because it wasn't the right time for them. And the buyer today is really focused on the details. They want to have the overall experience and have it be as smooth and pleasurable as possible in order to get the best results and get that house. So buyers are less willing today to make those concessions. I think that's the biggest thing with that. Why don't you talk to me about closing costs and what we've seen right now with closing costs, Brittany. Okay, so that's number nine. Um, that was another thing that sort of fell to the wayside um, previously. And the reason they've become important again is because of the rates. So different lenders are offering um, buy-down options and we could do, I think we have done a podcast on rate buy-downs. Um, you know, that's a whole topic in and of itself, but we're starting to see that come into play again where... Um, you know, buyers are asking sellers to pay for a portion of closing costs that they can apply towards right buy downs and things of that nature. Um, and, you know, those amounts can vary depending on um, what the lender recommends and the buyer needs. But um, certainly there are things to factor in with our offers. And also from the selling side, explaining to our sellers, listen, if you get an offer that's, you know, $100,000, or $105,000 with $5,000 in closing costs, it's the same net-to-seller amount. So having those conversations, again, are really important. I think that's a really good point. And I think when it comes to closing costs, it's something that was previously looked at as almost a faux pas. Like you wanted to present your best, cleanest offer because you knew that you were competing with other people. And there were people who did need seller-paid closing costs in order to be able to complete the transaction. And they were really left to the wayside as our market just exploded. So now that we're starting to see those concessions become more common once again, either, you know, small amounts or, you know, the buyers going ahead and factoring it into their offer price, we're starting to see more of that balance come back. And I think it's an important shift that, you know, creates more equilibrium. That really leads us to the last thing and that we had on our list, number 10, which is the biggest cliche. I can't believe that 
We I'll came up it. with this. You can I say it because it. I'm embarrassed that we did not coin this. I wish we had because I think it's so funny. But this is something that people are say- people are in air quotes. People are this is what the people are saying. I hear um, a lot of people saying, "Date the rate, marry the house." Why don't you explain to our audience what that means? So the sticker shock of rates going from two point five percent. To 3.5%, to 4%, to 5%, to 6 to 7 I think they were up to 8 You know, that was crazy. And it was so scary for buyers to see that that had changed so quickly, virtually overnight. The sticker shock has worn off a little bit. You know, we've been hovering, you know, in the low sixes, mid sixes for a while now. And I think buyers are starting to realize, okay, this is kind of the new normal. And if you look at national averages over decades and decades, and I'm the first to say I'm more qualitative than quantitative, but that is what the data shows historically. Um, You know, this is kind of what it is now. And so at the end of the day, buy the house because you love the house and your need to move is still there. You still may need a different space or, you know, family life changes or, or life changes and needs change in a home. So you shouldn't not seek those changes just because of the rate. So date the rate. It's temporary. Refinance when rates come down, but ultimately move forward with the house that you really want because it's what you need at that time in your life. So my big takeaway from this cliche is, oh, that rhymed. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> my big takeaway from this cliche is really simple. It's if you want the house, and you can afford the payment, even if it's a little uncomfortable right now, know yourself. Know that the payment can change, and there's things that you can do in order to have that adjusted. But if it's financially viable for you to move forward, and the only thing that's holding you back is the fact that you're pre—you know you're currently in a much lower rate than you would be in for the new property, the best rate is the best rate that you can get that day. And Wishing that you had a lower rate, letting that hold you back is really only hurting yourself because rates will change in the future. There is always the opportunity to refinance. And ultimately, it just comes down to making sure that you're making the best and smartest financial decision for you and your family. I think that's great. And I I hope that you've all found this to be helpful. You hear a lot of noise as far as real estate's concerned right now. And hopefully we have kind of gone through some of the topics that you may be hearing and explain them a little bit better. Um, and as always, Jeremy, it was a pleasure. It's so good having you oh, here. pleasure and better rhymed. Ish. <laughs> See, I mean, you put the two of us together on the podcast <laughs> and it's like dad joke city. So on that note, we can go ahead and wrap up this week. Brittany will actually be joining me on a more regular basis. She'll be stepping into the hosting chair more often as we move forward and, you know, interviewing guests and really running with a lot of these different concepts because our audience feedback is consistent. People love Brittany. So, (laughs) you know, you ask and we will deliver. But thank you to my guest, Brittany Osborne, for being here as we went through our list of the top 10 shifts that we are seeing with our clients in today's market. Hopefully this was beneficial and we'll be back next week with another episode of the View Charlotte Real Estate and Entertainment Podcast.